two daughters uh, that attend this church, uh, Stacy Dickens and Kim Michael Fragnito. Um, that's their dad. And so we just want to remember uh, their family in our prayers over the coming days. Uh, we have been in a series looking at the, great, the life of the great man of God, uh, the Apostle Peter. And today I want to do just a little bit of review to begin. Last week we looked at a theological teaching that Peter offers from 1 Peter chapter 2. And then there's some practical outworkings that come from that. The theological teaching itself was that Jesus is sinless. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, Jesus committed no sin. Peter is stating here what the other New Testament believers uh, held and the doctrine that the church has held historically uh, through time, that Jesus lived a life free of sin, that he never once violated a moral law of God, that he never once had a sideways thought, that he never once let one slip or told a fib or disobeyed mom or dad. Jesus lived a sinless life. Again, this is the historical teaching of the church, and it's shared by all of the New Testament writers. Peter continues saying that when Jesus died on the cross, that he bore in his physical body the sins of the world, past, present, and future. There was some sort of cosmic transference that took place while Jesus was hanging there on the cross those three hours from 12 noon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. All of the sins of the world were heaped upon his body. Peter writes, 1 Peter 2 and verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now the point of all this, the reason why Peter is even sharing this, is to show us what Jesus was willing to do, that Jesus was willing to sacrifice his own life. He was willing to suffer himself in order that you and I might reap the benefits of that. Jesus endured great suffering and permitted these things to happen, and the result was that we get to experience forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God in heaven. Now, Peter, ever the pastor, wants to use this information as a motivation for you and I to live our lives the same way, to pour ourselves out, to live our lives, as Paul says in Romans chapter 2 and verse 1, as living sacrifices for others. Peter makes an appeal for New Testament believers to live what some theologians call the cruciform life. He says, verse 21, for to this, this cruciform life, you have been called. And then he gives his reasons for it. He says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So again, Peter's appeal here is for us to live like Jesus lived, for us to be willing to self, live lives of self-sacrifice for the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, toward the lives of others. Peter has this crazy notion, this crazy belief, that if you give your life away, that it's then that you really discover it. He has this crazy idea that your life doesn't even belong to you, but that it belongs to the one who created it. Now, what Peter will show us today are three ways that you and I can give our lives away, three areas of life where this cruciform existence can be practiced. Number one, in our relationship to the government. Number two, in our relationship to slaves to masters. And number three, in the marriage relationship. Basically, Peter has gone from preaching these wonderful theological concepts to meddling in our lives. Can you believe that? All right, so um, our text for today is the same as what we read last week, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 21. Here we go. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
by his wounds you have been healed. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Um, as I was saying, Peter gives, he gives us this theological teaching, is what we just read, but then he gives us three, for instances, or three areas of life where this cruciform life, or this life of self-sacrifice can be lived out practically. Um, he says the first of those is in relationship to our government. Verse 13, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now he's referring here to the institutions that are ordained by God. God did not ordain the local librarian. So this is not what Peter has in mind. What Peter's talking about here is the civil magistrate. He's thinking of the people who write the laws, and he's speaking of the people who enforce those laws. So within that realm of government, that's who he's saying we are to be subjected to. Peter talks about, or Paul talks about this over in his letter to the Romans. Paul writes Romans 13 and verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Again, the librarian is not, I don't have anything against librarians. My aunt was a librarian. But that's not as far, the scope as far as what he's talking about here. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So scripture agrees with scripture here. We have both Peter and Paul saying the same thing that we are to be subject to our governing authorities. That is the country of our residents. Now, I know that what we're thinking, we're thinking to ourselves, you know, what? Well, what if my government's misbehaving? Am I not allowed to criticize it? No, that's not what he's saying here. What if my government asks me to do something that's in a violation, a clear violation of what God expects of me? Am I supposed to just go along with what the government tells me? No, again, that's not what Peter is saying here. Um, Jesus actually answers that question of whether or not we're supposed to go along with it. The Lord Jesus says, uh, Matthew chapter 22 and verse 21, he's asked the question of what should a, a proper relationship look like between a Christian a believer and their government. Jesus says, Matthew 22 and verse 21, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. In other words, Jesus recognizes that there are human authorities in this world. There are kings who will oversee kingdoms or uh, areas, parts of this world. And we are living under the jurisdiction of those kingdoms. We should obey their laws as such. We should be good, upstanding citizens. I mean, nobody in this room wants anarchy. Nobody was interested in that. However, there is also the king with a capital K, and that is above every other king. This would be the king of the universe, a person that you and I know as God. And when or if the laws of the kings of the earth require us to disobey the greater laws of the, of the king of the universe, then we default to the king of the universe. Everybody on board with me? All right, this is what Peter has in mind here. This reminds me of the three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were uh, faithful citizens of the Babylonian Empire, and they were following along with what the government was doing and living their lives as well. But one day, King Nebuchadnezzar made a law requiring that everyone bow down and worship an idol image. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we can't do that because God has given us a commandment, commandment number two, and he told us that you shall not make for yourself a carved image or bow down to them. And so these three guys deferred to the greater law. They deferred to the laws of the God of the universe, thereby defying their government and honoring the scriptures. So we have to live in this world. Jesus recognizes that. Peter recognizes that. Paul recognizes that. And the Bible instructs for us to be good subject of the authorities of this world, but that our first allegiance, our primary allegiance, is not to the flag of the country of our residence, but to the God who oversees all the countries of the world. Okay, still with me? Okay. I hope you stay with me. Some church leaders in recent years have begun teaching against pledging the flag claiming that our only allegiance should be to the Lord on high and that pledging allegiance to some earthly power is somehow unbiblical. Now, is that consistent with what Jesus just taught? Render to Caesar what Caesar's, give to God what is God's. Of course that's not consistent with what Jesus is teaching. Jesus did not say, choose me and reject your government. It's not his message at all. 
Neither did Paul or Peter say that. They said, rather, the opposite, be subject to the governing authorities. Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17, at the very end of the verse, he says, honor the emperor. And remember, Peter's talking about the Roman government, not exactly a government that is known for being noble and upstanding and fair in all things. So patriotism is not discouraged in the Bible. It's actually encouraged. And I say this in all humility, that if you have a Bible teacher who tells you differently than that, then I think it's time for you to find a new Bible teacher. Just my thoughts on the matter. Amen? All right, that's a little weak, but think about it. What is, uh, all right, so we are to be good subjects of the country of our residence, and why would I do that then? What is the motivation for me to want to be a su- subjected to or a subject within my country of my residence? And Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, he says, For this is the will of God. And by, I'm, yeah, to, that you will put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In other words, people who have raised concerns about you with the government, when the governor of your fellow citizens see your squeaky clean lifestyle and what an upstanding citizen you are and what a patriot you are, they'll recognize that, hey, look, this person is, they're a great citizen. Why, why are we wanting to throw them under the bus? I don't understand that. And so they'll turn to the whiner, they'll turn to the accuser, they'll turn to the person who's brought charges against you, and they'll say, zip it, right? In other words, because of your conduct, people will disregard what the critics have to say about you. The people who know you will know that there is no merit in the accusations. Now, does this always work this way? Of course not. I mean, this is not the world that we live in. Everything's not always fair. Uh, But flip the script. If we behave as antagonists, always causing problems within our government, always speaking of insurrection, and our name is brought before the civil magistrate, things will probably go poorly for us. When we get before that person of power in the government and they know us to be an antagonist, things probably aren't going to go real well for us. So live as good subjects of the country of our residence, pay the taxes, support the government, but always maintain our first allegiance to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All right, number two. A second way that Peter's audience can demonstrate this sacrificial existence, this cruciform life, number two, is in the relationship of slaves to their masters. Verse 18. Servants or slaves, the Greek term that's used there is the word doulos, and it's typically translated as slaves or servants throughout the rest of the New Testament. Um, He says, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle masters, but also to the unjust. That is to the rotten masters that are out there. So it's not just the ones that are good that we ought to uh, show honor and respect to, but the ones that are bad as well. You say, Gordon, I mean, I I knew that Peter had lost his, his mind. Right? He's sitting here telling people who are slaves to obey their masters. I mean, what are we talking about here? Uh, the Bible is affirming slavery? Really? Well, hang on just a second. In ancient times, slavery was institutionalized as what we might refer to as indentured servanthood. A person would voluntarily, keyword, voluntarily place themselves in subjection under a master. And this master would in turn house them, feed them, clothe them, and care for their general needs. In addition, if there was a particular trade that that master was engaged in, he would teach that slave that trade so that that person could then one day, when they finished their term of service, could go out and start their own business in cobbling or in making blacksmithing or whatever the trade may be, and so they could start their own business. All that to say, slavery in the first century was far from the antebellum slavery that we knew here in the States. Antebellum slavery represented an involuntary, forced non-contractual servitude. What the Bible has in view was not an antebellum form of slavery. Rather, it was voluntary. It was a contractual agreement. And this agreement would last for a set period of time. Eventually, the slave would be free. Doctors were slaves. 
in the first century. Uh, lawyers were slaves in the first century. Teachers were slaves in the first century. People of all sorts of trades were slaves in the first century. This slavery cut across all strata of the socioeconomic uh, world. In fact, I re if I remember correctly, about a third of the Roman uh, people, the Roman population, the Roman Empire, were considered to be indentured servants. Um, so please do not confuse Peter's invitation to be subject to a master with some sort of affirmation of antebellum slavery. The Bible would never advocate for that. Peter says, verse 18, to respect also the unjust master. I mean, some bosses are just difficult to work for, right? I mean, I don't know what the reason may be that they're difficult. Maybe it's because they're just insecure. Maybe it's because they're just a grouchy person. I don't know. But for whatever reason, some bosses are difficult to work for. But whatever the reason, Peter says, if you're in a contractual agreement, if you signed on to work for this guy, verse 18, then you need to be subject to him with all respect. In other words, recognize the employer-employee relationship here. Don't mouth off. Do what's been asked of you. Work hard. Peter says, verse 21, for to this you have been called. The Greek word that's used there is kaleo. It's translated called. It's kaleo. And kaleo is the same word that Jesus uses when he kaleo or calls his disciples to follow after him. Again, Peter is saying we've been called to this, to follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus. Um, as he sacrificed for us, as he suffered for us, so we do the same for others. He says in verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. Verse 22, Using Jesus Christ, who committed no sin and who had no deceit in his mouth, this perfectly innocent man, verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Remember, in this context, he's speaking to these slaves who are being overseen by their masters. He, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Peter is saying, if you think that I'm asking too much of you, think of what the Lord Jesus did for you. And that should help us find some perspective. You know, Peter knows something. Peter knows that our lives have their greatest impact for the kingdom of God when they are given away for the benefit of others. One more example he gives us, one more area of life where we can live sacrificially, and that is in the context of the marriage relationship. He says, chapter 3 and verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Notice Peter uses the same word in talking about the relationship of wives to their husbands as he does when he's talking about all these other examples. He's calling for the same posture, the same mindset of not being rebellious, of not being an antagonist, but rather being cooperative in the relationship. And that's what he has in view here, but it's even more than that. Peter is drawing from the biblical concept of male headship. That is, that men are the head of the household, and that at the end of the day, when all opinions are shared, and when all votes are cast, that the responsibility for leading the household falls on the man. That's the biblical concept of male headship. Now, I know that that does not play well with our 21st century uh, approach to things. It may sound like male chauvinism. It may sound like uh, male dominance. And so what I'd like to do, because this is a significant issue, and it really does intersect with a lot of the problems and things that we're seeing going on, the confusion that's happening in our culture today, I want to punt this one into next week. So we'll give you a whole week just to enjoy talking about that one around the dinner table. But anyhow, we're going to come back to that next week because I think it'll be a really helpful conversation. I think it'll be a very enlightening conversation for us to dig into this. What exactly? Because there's some, there's some values, there's some assumed values behind the scenes in Peter's words that in the space I have today, I just don't feel like I could do it proper justice. 
So we're going to punt this into next week. But the larger point that Peter is trying to make, and this is what I want you to see here, is that marriage requires sacrifice. That's his point here. Marriage requires sacrifice. And he calls on men to live in the same way. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. The Greek word understanding there is the word genosis. And it's more than just knowing facts about her. It's understanding what makes her tick and the ebb and flow of her day. It's, it's um, understanding, uh, having appreciation for her, looking into her eyes, getting inside of her head, getting inside of her heart, and doing so for the purpose of caring for her. He says, uh, he says um, to live with your wives in an understanding way. Peter says, verse 7, showing honor to the woman. And then there's that line, as the weaker vessel. Again, we're going to deal with that next week, okay? So... But again, there's these underlying assumptions that Peter makes here about men and about women that he does not explain here, but that other passages of Scripture do help us to see what he means or what he's thinking. And so I assure you, though, in the meantime, between now and next week, that it is not, and I repeat, not his statement there, a slight of women. The Bible in no way ever regards women as a lesser than uh, person, uh, than men. And you'll see that play out next week. You don't show honor to someone. Remember, he's saying here, husbands, show honor to your wives. You don't show honor to someone who you don't hold in high regard. Okay. Um, finally, uh, okay, so that's our t- passage for today, and that's our treatment of those verses. And so that means it's time for us to stop and ask the question we ask every week around here, now that I'm in a lot of trouble, right? Um, what difference does all this make to my life? Um, I've got a slide for you here. This is a model of maturity. It's kind of a rough, my, my best on PowerPoint that I could come up with. So some of you maybe have seen this before. This comes from a uh, little six-stage model that is produced by a lady named Janet Hagberg in a book that she wrote back in the late 80s called Real Power. It popularized through the 90s, and it's something that I actually use in one of my classes that I teach at Point University. But um, anyhow, I want to pre- I presented it here to y'all before. Uh, this has been probably a couple of three years back. Um, but Some of you may be new, some of you may be old stuff, but it illustrates Peter's point. So let me just kind of walk us through this model for a moment. You can see there there's six stages of power. The first stage of power is what she calls powerlessness. This is somebody who uh, just doesn't know what steps to take to move their life forward. Like, just feel kind of stuck. Uh, doesn't know where to go to get the education, where to go to get the, a j- better paying job, just to get out of this kind of rut that they're in. Uh, this could even be somebody who has got some sort of substance abuse issue. They want to overcome it, but they just can't seem to do it, and they don't know where to go and find the resources to be able to get out of this situation. And so this is somebody who feels, at least in some areas of their life, powerless. The second stage is what she calls the association stage. And so I'm going to explain that after I explain the third one. The third stage is what I call the arrive stage. She calls it power by symbols. The arrive stage is somebody who has achieved all of the material success that the world has to offer. Um, They've got a big checking account. They've got a nice uh, place to live. They maybe drive a nice car. Uh, Maybe they're out on the lake on the weekends. I don't know. Whatever the world might say, hey, look, this is somebody who has um, achieved Uh, worldly success, material success. Some people have achieved worldly success, but they're not defined by those things. This is somebody who is defined by those things. Um, I I don't want to mention any, any, uh, 
I was going to like talk about some football coaches, but I, probably not appropriate for me to do that because some of you maybe are fans of those football teams. But anyhow, so you can imagine there are some coaches out there who are kind of arrive state people, and this is part of how they're able to draw people, these young men, these stage tours into their program because the stage two person is the association stage, and so they feel powerful because they're around people who have achieved all this success and have all this notoriety and have all this stuff. And so it's very easy for coaches who have perhaps gotten a lot of national championship rings to put those in, on their desk for somebody to walk into and to see. And they're like, hey, look, you come be a part of our team and you can be a winner like I am. And so there's a real appeal there, especially for somebody who's at this stage through to who's, who's maybe perhaps young and impressionable and sees the world through this lens of uh, materialism. Um, moving on to stage four, uh, this is the reflection stage. This is the person who begins to ask the ultimate questions of life. What in the world am I here for? God, what do you want to do with my life? There's got to be more to life than just, you know, rising to the top, living on top of the mountain, because eventually you get lonely up there, right? Um, you know, the stage three person's more than willing just to climb over top and claw over top of other people in order to get there. The stage four person says, I just don't feel good about doing that. And they start asking, maybe there's got to be something, maybe there's something I'm missing here. Maybe there's something more to life than what I'm seeing. And so they, this is the reflection stage. They're asking those questions. As they begin to sort out what the answers to those questions are, they move for, toward stage five. And you know, the church is in a very unique place to be able to help people facilitate these kinds of questions. What in the world am I here for? Is there some purpose that God has for me? in this world and help see our lives in that way. And so we help facilitate, facilitate people toward stage five. Stage five is where somebody has answered those questions and they begin living that life of purpose. They begin living in response to where they feel like God is leading them and directing them, how God wants to use them. And they're pouring their lives out for other people. The last stage is what we call the gestalt stage. I never knew what that word was the first time I saw it either, right? So that word actually is referring to somebody. I drew a little stick figure, right? That's the extent of my art. A little stick figure there that kind of illustrates what gestalt stage is. The gestalt is somebody whose life just seems to glow, whose life has an influence and an impact on us, even though we may or may not know them. This could be a, a football coach uh, that you grew up knowing who just seemed to want the very best for his players. Uh, this could be a, a teacher from school. This could be an elderly grandparent who, even though maybe they've already passed on or you've moved on in life and you hadn't seen them in 30 years, they're still speaking to you. They're still calling you to live life on the other side of this equation, to live your life with a sense of purpose. Um, and so that's the gestalt kind of person. Now, I showed this, actually, this model. I'm gonna, I think we got another slide here. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead to the next one. So I showed this model to my father-in-law. This is years ago. And he, I was telling him what I was teaching in class. And so he's like, hey, you know what? That's interesting. He's, and he drew a line down the middle of my little uh, six stages there. And he said, you know what that is? He said, that's life before the fall, creation. And that's what life looks like after sin came into the world, the fall. So the point there being, this side of the equation is where we were supposed to start life. This is where Adam and Eve were placed in the garden over here, asking God, God, what do you want to do with my day today? How can I glorify you? How can I serve you? But look again at how far we've fallen. Um, the path from one side to the other side is, and I think I got one more slide here, is simply captured in the word surrender. 
as we start to ask those ultimate questions of life, and then we surrender ourselves over to what God says your life is supposed to be about, to how God wants me to live my life, not just in behavior, but in sense of purpose. That I, God put me on this earth and has breath still in my lungs because he wants to accomplish some things through me. And we begin living our life with intention. Um, let's go back to Peter for a moment. <clears throat> uh, well, I, well, before we go back to Peter, let me just tell you. Jesus puts this model this way. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And then again in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Paul describes Jesus as a stage six figure. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 7, he says, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I mean, this is the God of the universe who became a frail little baby in Mary's arms. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus took on volumes of influence in proportion to the breath that he had and the time that he spent here on the earth. Now let's think about this model with respect to Peter. I want to show you Peter at some, state, some of these stages of maturity because what we see in the Gospels, what we see in Peter's life, is an evolution in Peter's thinking. We see him grow into maturity um, from a focus on conquering the world to being a servant of it. Here is Peter at stage 2, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. This is the first time that Peter is presented with this idea that Jesus is going to end up being killed that he's going to be a crucified Savior. And Peter meets it with sharp rebuke. I can't even imagine why you would want to do something like that. Peter says, chapter eight, verse, Mark chapter 8, and verse 31, And Jesus began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And not only that, but that he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the political scribes, all the stage three powerful people, the political class. And not only that, but that he would be killed, and after three days he would rise again. Again, look at Peter's response to this, verse 32. And Jesus said this plainly, and Peter took Jesus aside. I need to talk to you for a second, because what I just heard, that doesn't square with where life, the pinnacle of life. And he began to rebuke Jesus. And then Jesus, in the next verse, has to grab Peter aside. And rebuke Peter. Again, Peter sees Jesus as a stage three figure. That's how Peter interpreted life. He knows that Jesus is this humble man, but he just figures, well, one of these days, you know, he's finally going to go up. He's going to take over everything. I'm going to get to be by his side. Remember, Peter missed association. I get to be by his side, and I'll become powerful as well. I'll just ride his coattails to the top. And Peter, a stage two person, will be right there to do that. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus reveals the full plan, that he is not going to put a crown on his head, that he is not going to wear the royal robes, that he has no intention of conquering the world in the way that Peter thinks of conquering the world, but rather a sort of disgusting proposal Jesus makes, that he plans to die, that he plans to forfeit his life, that he plans to waste his life, in Peter's view, and sacrifice it. Why would you want to throw your life away like that? Peter's thinking. And so Peter rebukes Jesus, and then Peter turns around and has to square Peter back up. So the first time Peter meets the cross, the first time he's introduced to this self-sacrificial way of life, Peter rejects it. 
Why? Because, again, Peter is still at stage two. This is not the way to become influential, Jesus. This is not the way to arise up in power and in influence, Jesus. You've got to go conquer the world if you're going to rule it. Now, the second time that Peter's confronted with the cross, Peter is coming into stage four. He's a little bit mature, more mature in his walk with Christ. He's beginning to realize that, okay, giving my life away, that's a different concept. I never really thought about that. But I can see now we're giving my life away and serving others that there's influence there. And so he's been confronted with these ultimate questions of life. But then the crucifixion happens, and Peter's just not ready yet. He's not ready to follow in the steps of the Savior. And so rather than take his spot alongside the Lord Jesus, Peter says, this is just too much for me. I can't do this. A week later, Peter and Jesus meet up alongside the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And feed my sheep. And Jesus restores Peter and puts him back on track. When we get to, by the time we get to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, Peter's only about a year away from being crucified upside down. This is a different man. And it's at this point in his life that he has fully embraced the way of the Savior. And now he's encouraging others to follow the courageous steps, the life-giving footsteps of the Savior. Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving all of us an example so that we might follow in his footsteps. There it is, a statement of the cruciform life, a life that is poured out for the benefit of others. And you know, the ripple of Peter's life still breathes hope and encouragement, and it beckons us to the other side of that equation. Firefighter Stephen Siller was the youngest of seven children. He was born to May and George Siller. I've got a picture of firefighter Stephen Siller here for you. At the age of eight, Stephen lost his dad. A year and a half later, he lost his mother, leaving him an orphan to be raised by his six older siblings. He was the youngest of seven. On September 11, 2001, Stephen, who was assigned to Brooklyn's Squad 1, had just finished his shift and was on his way to play golf with his older brothers, the ones that had helped raise him. On his way to play golf, Stephen heard on his scanner that a plane had just hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center. He turned his truck around, headed back to the fire station on the way. He called his wife and said, tell my brothers that I'll catch up with them later. Or perhaps, as he would have said, I'll catch up with you guys later. Something like that. I grew up up there, so that's the way they talk. When he got to the firehouse, all the trucks were gone. I got a picture of the fire station here, uh, squad, uh, Brooklyn Squad 1. All the guys were out responding to the fire, and Stephen rushed inside, grabbed his gear, threw it in the back of his truck, and raced toward downtown Manhattan. Now, Stephen was in Brooklyn at the time, and he had to make his way across the East River to where the Twin Towers were uh, in Manhattan, the lower Manhattan. And so I've got a picture, you know, a map for you, actually, that shows you where he was. He was in the southwest part of Brooklyn there, and he had to cross over the river that, uh, to, to where the Twin Towers were. And so... Um, there's actually, it's not a, it's not a, the road that goes across the, the tunnel is not, I'm sorry, it's a tunnel, it's not a, it's not a bridge. It's called the Battery Tunnel, and it goes underneath of the East River. And I've got several pictures of that tunnel for you here. Um, the problem is that when Stephen gets to the entrance of the tunnel, he's going nowhere. 
He arrives in his truck. Again, he's got his gear in the back of his truck, and there's just nowhere to go. And the authorities on the other side are not letting anybody come into lower Manhattan from that side of the river. And so everything's just jammed up with cars. Um, so Stephen's got a problem. How is he going to get to where he needs to go uh, over there where the Twin Towers are, where the rest of his squad is and are beginning to fight this fire? Uh, the tunnel itself is a mile and three quarters long. So it's a long way to haul 60 pounds of gear uh, on his back. Um, and then he's got another about quarter mile to go once he comes out of the tunnel entrance into Manhattan to get to the actual Twin Towers itself. Um, so, and he's off his shift, right? He just finished his shift. He's heading out. To, he didn't have to go. But Stephen thinks, this is what I do. I want to be there. I want to be a part of this. And so he goes. So he abandons his truck. He grabs his 60 pounds of gear. He starts running, 34 years old, running through the tunnel. Eventually, Stephen arrives at the base of the North Tower. He meets up with his squad. They go inside, and neither Stephen nor the members of his squad are ever seen or heard from again. You know, sorry, I was like this all weekend. It's terrible. As I say, I'm, I'm my wife's kind of, kind of woman. Stephen had everything to live for. He had a loving wife at home. He had five, five young children. I have a picture for you here of them walking out of the church just after the funeral. You can see the flag draped over in Stephen's coffin. His wife is a lady with the, in the middle of the picture with the black hair holding their little infant child. His oldest daughter is there to her left holding the, the hand of one of the other kids. You can see his young family there. And his children grew up without their father. On this day, 21 years ago, some people paid the ultimate sacrifice. But friends, for all of us, every day, opportunities abound for us to give our lives away. To this, to this, you have been called pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us a clear vision for our lives. To be a Christian, Lord, is not to conquer the world. Lord, rather, it's to pour ourselves out, to follow in your footsteps, to follow your example, to pour our lives out for others. Lord, as we pause here today and remember your example and remember your broken body and your shed blood, Lord, may that be all the motivation we need to go into the week ahead, to go into our home, to serve our families, to serve the people in our workplace, to serve the people in our community. Lord, we love you. And the world will know that we are yours when they see these acts of service and love and generosity flowing freely from your people. Or we can point toward you without even saying your name. Jesus, we give you this space. Continue to work in our hearts, we pray.